pray, Lord God, this morning that you would help us to believe. I pray that you would move us out of our unbelief. And uh, I know, Lord, that probably many are sitting here going, thinking to themselves, well, I do believe. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to move to deeper and greater and stronger belief in who our Father is and what he intends for us and what it really means to walk by faith and not by sight, what it really means to live by faith. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. I didn't plan today's message, but you're going to think I did once I get halfway through this, uh, or get started. So the first two weeks of this series, we talked about belonging somewhere, belonging to a people. Everybody hear me okay? We're okay? Okay, good deal. Uh, If I yell and scare you, I'm sorry. Ish. All right. (laughs) No one believes that. Um, So... um, So we talk about belonging and being a part of something and, um, and not being alone, choosing not to be in our aloneness anymore. So today we're going to talk about believing. And today's kind of technical on some things. I'm going to get off into some Greek and some weeds, and I'm going to need you to help me make salad out of the grass we find, I guess. I don't know. We're going to, we're going to dig into some stuff. Um, I need you to not hear what I'm not saying. This is really important, okay? There are events going on in the world right now that what I'm about to talk about, you're going to think I'm teaching about that, and I'm not, okay? And um, so I, I, I just want you to be careful and not take me where I'm not going and not hear me that way. You'll understand in just a minute, I promise, okay? So today we're talking about believing, and when we talk about the word believing, uh, we are walking to a place of resting in God. And when I talk about resting in God, I'm also talking about trusting God. And what I need you to be honest with yourself about is this. I have a hard time trusting God. And I need you to realize that you have a hard time trusting God. And I said this several weeks ago, and I'll say it again today. Until you trust God, you don't have a God. If you don't trust God, you are your own God. If you don't trust God, you are your own God. Meaning that you trust the the money you're able to produce. You trust the lifestyle you're able to give yourself. You trust the friendships you're able to give yourself. You basically worship you in a way that you would never call worship, but that's exactly what it is. And so today we're going to talk about what it means to trust God. And I'm telling you, when we walk into what it means to trust God, that means we trust God and we don't trust circumstances. We don't look at world events and panic. We don't look at state events and panic. We don't look at our checkbooks and panic. That was for me, not you. We are... We, we learn to trust God and we learn to distrust the things that we can see with our eyes and touch with our hands. Why? Because we don't live from the kingdom of the earth. We live from the kingdom of heaven. We live from what God has, not from what we have. Does that make sense? Are you with me so far? If you're sitting there going, I'm not sure I understand what you're talking about. I'm going to try to get there, but bear with me. I am going to talk about some things, though, that may not make sense to if you haven't been in church very much. And it's okay if you haven't been in church very much. I'm glad you're here today. 
but I'm going to walk through a little bit of some, some history of the world so you understand where I'm coming from. So, let's begin with the concept of, and this is, I know this is going to sound like it's coming out of left field, but it's really important. We're going to start with the concept of genocide. You're like, you're right, that was out of left field. I had no idea that was the word he was going to say. You're right, why would you? Because I did not set that word up. And why? Well, I just want you to know that genocide is wrong. What do you think? Wait, do you agree? <laughs> yes, wrong. We should not wipe out other... Okay. Good deal. Now, here's the problem. You grew up in Sunday school, many of you, or maybe you haven't. And you look at the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. When I say Old Covenant, Old Testament, they're similar in my thinking. Uh, you see some things that look like God says, hey, genocide, wipe them out. So I'm going to walk you through something that's really important. I'm headed to Hebrews chapter 4. I'm headed to Hebrews chapter 4. I'm starting in Deuteronomy. And if you're sitting there thinking, this is going to be a long sermon. I have an extra hour today. You, can, you guys look rested and I'm ready to go. So here's what God said to the nation of Israel. He said in Deuteronomy 9.5, it's not because you are so good. I need you to hear that. God never looked at Israel and said, you know what? You guys are awesome. He did look at them and say, I love you, and I choose you. And that's how they became the chosen people. So, Deuteronomy 9.5, it's not because you're so good and have such integrity that you're about to occupy their land. He's speaking about the Canaanites. I'll get there in just a second. The Lord your God will drive these nations out ahead of you only because of their wickedness and to fulfill the oath he swore to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's Deuteronomy 9.5. That, my friends, is the uh, preview, the start of the Canaan invasion in Deuteronomy 9.5. That's where it starts, or that's how God's explaining it to his people. You see some things in there. One, you see that God's primarily driving people out. We're not talking genocide primarily. There are some people who are going to die. But God also in Canaan is not wiping out a race or several races. God's going after a culture. A culture where human beings are trafficked. Where people are forced into prostitution. A culture where children are murdered. A culture where crime and evil reigns. A culture that God gave them 400 years to do something different. By the way, everyone in Canaan was a descendant of Noah that had the exact same access to God that all of Noah's sons had. Every one of them had the exact same access to God. However, all of Noah's children re rebelled against that and God had to actually go find Abram for there even to be a chosen people. Okay? But you should know, they had access. And so there are some horrible things going on but often when people talk about the Canaan land invasion, they just see it as a genocide. But it wasn't that. One, there was people being driven out before. So people escaped the Canaan land. Two, you should look at the main battles of Canaan land and realize that those are not cities like Rock Springs. Those were, those were military 
outposts like military bases. AI, Jericho, all those were military places, not just cities. So think of it like uh, if someone attacks China, they're attacking the wall of China, not Beijing. Or if someone attacks America, they're attacking the Pentagon, not Washington, D.C., or they can have Washington, D.C., not, uh, <laughs> not New York. <clears throat> Where's my phone? I, I didn't say I would attack Washington, D.C. I said I would vote for it. If, if my vote counted. If my vote counted. That's all. Sorry. You're like, that man's about to break down up there. Okay, Joshua jo Ryan Butler says in his book, his book, The Skeletons in God's Closet, he says the cities Israel take out are military strongholds, not civilian population centers. So when Israel utterly destroys a city like Jericho or Ai, we should picture a military fort being taken over, not a civilian massacre. Okay, so that's some things you should see. There's some other factors about the, the Canaan land takeover. I'm setting this up because I'm trying to change some thoughts about how God... I'm, what I'm really talking about is the immutability of God, which is a doctrine, an orthodox doctrine, as old as I would say the Gospel of John itself. What it means is God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what I'm laying for you as a basis to help you understand God has not changed. Man's understanding of God is what's changed. Okay? So that's why I'm talking about genocide. As you also you see in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 10, that God tells the people, as you approach a town to attack it, you must first offer its people terms for peace. That's not genocide. You see? You'll have to offer them terms of peace first. So any city that was attacked was attacked because they declared war on Israel. Okay? They were all given terms of peace. The next thing you see is that many of them in Exodus 23, 30, God says, I will drive them out. I will drive them out a little at a time until your population has increased enough to take possession of the land. So many people escaped Canaan and carried on with their lives. But the culture of Canaan, the child sacrifice, the, the forced prostitution, the human trafficking, the cruelty... That was destroyed. Does that make sense? Idol worship. All that was destroyed in the takeover of Israel. Here's the biggest challenge to much of God in the Old Covenant. In the Old Testament, God is moving and working according to Old Covenant realities. The blood of Jesus has yet to be shed. The truth about who God is has yet to be revealed. People are trying to comprehend God and everything you read up until the actual revelation of Jesus is Malachi, Isaiah, Ezekiel, David, Abram, Moses, all of them trying to wrap their head around an unfathomable God and trying to understand a God who loves them, but who loves them so much that his love overwhelms and even sometimes doesn't look like love to human eyes. Sometimes I compare God to, to Lenny in the tale of, uh, what's the one, of Mice and Men? Of Mice and Men, where Lenny loves things to death, you know? There was a Looney Tunes cartoon about it when I was a kid. I will hug him and pet him and squeeze him and call him George. 
I knew Looney Tunes would relate better than Of Mice and Men. I, I don't know how I knew that, but I did. And sometimes that's how I think, that's how I think the love of God is. God's love is so passionate, so overwhelming, so complete that it just can it like destroy everything we think about God. So, I, I want you to see that about this. Now, I said all that because here's what I really need you to see. This is what moves us into the new covenant. Now, if Joshua had succeeded, if Joshua had succeeded in giving them this rest, God would not have spoken about another day of rest still to come. Here's what I need you to understand about Joshua that is critical. You must not forget it. When you start trying to paint a picture of God that is harsh and cruel and judgmental and wrath-filled and all these things, and you miss the love and the pursuit and the mercy, which defines He's all of those things first and foremost and foundationally. Here's what, here Joshua obeyed God, destroyed a culture, drove people out, broke military defenses, and he took the Canaan land. And here's what you need to know. He failed. He failed. And I mean it in no uncertain terms. The, the generation that took the promised land was there for one generation. And I don't know, they don't really count Israeli history in dark ages, but you have the promises of Abram that go to Isaac, that go to Jacob, and then you have 400 years of slavery. I would call that a dark age for the nation of Israel. Then you have them coming out of Egypt in victory, their enemies drowning in the sea, 40 years in the wilderness. Then you get one generation in the Canaan land. Joshua dies, has no successor. None of the parents have given their children their faith. They immediately enter another prolonged dark ages because they did not do their job. They took the promised land, but they did not give their children any promises. <clears throat> Joshua failed. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell us. That Joshua failed, and through violence, and through his takeover, he took a promised land, but he did not claim the promise. And what I want you to see is that Jesus succeeded. Where Joshua failed through violence, Jesus succeeded through sacrifice. Where Joshua took down a sword and fought, Jesus laid down his life and died. One of those won, and one of those failed. I need you to see that. Because that old covenant reality that many of us have our thinking wrapped around the world today, we are, we, we are ignoring the teachings of Jesus today. Because Jesus said things like, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. And our personal favorite, turn the other cheek. And how I usually translated that at one point in my life was, yes, I will turn my cheek, but then I'm coming back with a left hook. 
That's not Christianity, though. It's really not. And I know people want to use the Bible to justify violence. But I need you to see, it never worked. It didn't give rest. It did not, it didn't even work for Israel. The law didn't work for Moses, and violence did not work for Joshua. You can write that down, you can get mad, you can tell your friends, you can whatever you want to do, but get in the word yourself and see what I'm talking about. Because you need to see that the God of the new covenant, the God who is represented in Jesus, who the Bible tells us in Colossians and Ephesians, he's the exact representation of God, and who the Bible tells in Hebrews that God's the same yesterday, today, and forever, we need you to see that the God who's represented in Jesus is the same God that's in the Old Covenant. If you start reading the Old Testament with that in mind, it will change your view on every story you read. Okay? Are you still with me? All right. Okay. Now that's all the slow parts. I mean, that is kindergarten stuff, all right? We are about to get into college level. I don't even know Greek, and I'm about to teach you some. (laughs) I'm about to teach you a lot of it, actually. And some of it, you're going to think I'm talking about killing a cat. I promise you, you're about to think that thought. But that's not what I mean. Because cats are good for cat people. Don't get mad at me. I didn't mean, I didn't say that. All right. And all the non-cat people are like, oh, that's a good idea. Cat people are like, oh, that's awful. Joshua failed. So let's get into Hebrews chapter 4, because this is the meat of today. I really need a long, long time to teach on Hebrews, and I'm, I'm not going to take it. Um, we'll, we will wade into this layer by layer over the next year. So today, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, we're going to peel back a couple layers of Hebrews 4, which I think is a very critical chapter for the Christian faith in this day and age. Hebrews 4, 8. Now, if Joshua had succeeded in giving them his rest, God would not have spoken of another day of rest still to come. I'm going to read it out of the Passion. It says, now, if this promise of rest was fulfilled when Joshua brought the people into the land, God wouldn't have spoken later of another yes rest to come. So the, 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 there's a Greek word here that I need you to understand. I don't care if you remember it. Other than uh, it's the Greek word for rest that's in this text, and it's the word katapausis. See, it sounds like you're hitting a cat. Katapausis. <laughs> but that's not what that means at all. But you laughed, and so that means I get a couple more seconds of your attention, and I'll take it. And so katapausis is a, uh, the, the, um, the, the Passion Translation speaks of this as a, as a rest yet to come, a rest that was fulfilled, uh, that a rest was just to come. And so here we have an old covenant with God that never achieved rest. It never came to peace. It never calmed down. It was always striving. It was always based in human effort. It was always failing. It was always struggling with who God was. Okay? So there's no rest. All right? Okay, why is this important? Most people are not living their life at rest. Most people are living their life in stress. Most people are living their life in stress. And you are dealing with your life and you're trying to ask God all the time to join you in your stress. God, I'm really freaking out here and I need you to come and be with me. And he loves you. And he's there. But he will not 
join you in your stress. He doesn't know how to stress. He's never stressed. Never at one point has God ever been anxious. Never has God sat in heaven twiddling his thumbs going, man, they're freaking me out down there. I don't know what's going to happen. That's never happened. He can't join you in your stress. But he can invite you into his rest. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's how Jesus said it. Come boldly to the throne of grace. That's how the writer of Hebrews said it. So when you come to God in your stress, realize he's inviting you into his rest. And you enter rest. Catapausis is a compound word. It, it comes, the root of the word is catapau. I'm having so much fun with this word. This is a great word. And you're like, he's back to the cat thing. No, no, no. Catapau means cease. It means stop. You enter into catapausis by stopping. And so catapausis is a realm, an atmosphere, a room, a space of resting, of, of, uh, that you enter in by ceasing. So you ever come home from work, open the door, walk into your house, cook dinner, wash the dishes, get the kids to bed, then sit down on your couch and rest. You catapowed into catapausis. You will never forget this, will you? You ceased into a place of ceasing, a realm of ceasing. You stopped what was before and entered into a place of stopped. Okay? So that's what God has for us, but he has it on a spirit level, a heart level, a... Sorry, I'm trying not to get too off in the weeds. On a level of my truest identity is at a place that is at rest in God. Who I am in my deepest understanding of myself is at rest in God. That's what this rest is talking about. Verse 9. I love verse 9 because, well, NLT says, Now there's a special rest still waiting for the people of God. The word special rest... Sabbatismo, it's a sabbatism. It's like baptism, but instead of into water, it's into Sabbath or rest. On the seventh day, God rested from his labors. He didn't rest from his labors because he was tired. God didn't get, didn't get to the end of the sixth day and go, whew, that was a rough week. I'm wiped, taking tomorrow off. That's not how this worked. He, he rested because he was satisfied. He rested because at the end of the sixth day, he looked at everything he'd done. He said, I'm awesome. That's good. That's real good. I'm satisfied. So I cease, catapal, into a place, a realm, a Sabbath of rest, a, cat, a catapausis. Okay? Now he has that for you. That's the promise. The promise has never really been a land. The promise has always been a father. And that promise is for you, and that promise is for Israel. For all who've entered into God's rest have rested from their labors just as God did after creating the world. Uh, I'm going to move on. I've already touched on this. So we have this place that's more than a day off that God invites us to. 
Now verse, seven, verse 11. I have this out of three translations, paraphrases, so forth. Because we're, we're about to jump off a cliff into some rest here. And it's really good, but I'm, I'm going to spend a minute on this verse. NLT, Hebrews 4.11, let's do our best to enter that rest, for if we disobey God as the people of Israel did, we will fail. I don't love that translation, and, I, and you're about to find out why. That's the NLT. The King James is even worse. Let us strive to enter into rest. That makes no sense. Let's work really hard to not work at all. Okay? Doesn't make sense. And I'll tell you why in a minute. It's because of a word that's here that stands alone, that almost never stands alone in Greek. And so, verse, verse 11, do your best to enter the rest. Passive translation is a little better, or paraphrase is a little better here. Then we must give our all and be eager to experience this faith, rest, life, so that no one falls short by following the same pattern of doubt and unbelief. Mm. Okay, you're like, I'm, how is that? Those don't even sound like the same verse. It's okay, hang on. I'm going to get you there. You're going to be fine. I'm just doing this in a slow way, so I build your anticipation, and when we get there, you're going to go, hallelujah, all right? Well, if, if you can get that many syllables out this morning. So, <clears throat> this is the mirror translation. <sighs> Let us therefore... Be prompt to understand and fully appropriate that rest and not fall again into the same trap that snared Israel in unbelief. Okay, there's several words here that are going to help you understand this. God wants you to enter this rest. And the word that's used here that's given everybody issues is the word spadalza. Spadalza. Spud. <laughs> what does it mean? The primary translation of the word spadalza is make haste. Make haste. That's the primary translation. It is not translated that way anywhere in the New Testament. Because usually spadalza is followed by another verb that gives it its, its, its meaning, that amplifies its meaning. But here, in the, the Greek, it stands alone. So what it, what it means is, it's, it's kind of like the Passion Translation, be eager to enter in, give your all and, and be eager to enter in, but Spadalza is about fast. Here's, here's what Spadalza is. Let's say you went to Disneyland, and you're standing in line because that's all there is to do there. And you're in line. And someone walks up to you and they give you one of those speed passes that I think costs like a house or something. I don't know what they are. And the speed pass enables you to exit the rules of the line. You know the rules of the line, right? Don't button line. Don't get too close. But don't slow down too much. Oh my gosh, if they take a half step, you take a half step or you'll get damaged. It's an experience I had. It's fine. <laughs> Someone gives you that quick pass and all of a sudden now you have access to the front of the line that you paid for, or that someone paid for, and they gave to you. Now, so when they give you this quick pass, here's what you do. Logically, you would step out of line, no longer follow the rules of the line, and race to where you can take your ride, correct? You would not stay in the line and start pushing down ladies and kids to get to the front of that line. You would not strive 
to enter the ride by pushing everyone out of the way. You would get out of the line. Spadalza is that. It's getting out of the line and hurrying to a place of rest. It's not striving to enter a place of rest. It's not efforting into a place of rest. That's not even possible. It's about getting there fast. Does that, does that make sense? That's what the text is teaching us. Make haste. Be eager. You could take the Passion Translation's idea of give your all, basically leave everything behind and just get to the ride. You could do that. That, that would fit. But the point that God is doing here is he, he is inviting you to quickly embrace a place, a realm, a reality of rest. That's what Father wants for you. Now, there's a little bit more of the verse, though. The verse talks about descending. We've talked about repentance a lot in church. We talk about it in, in framework of the repentance is when we elevate our thinking. We repent. The word pent, the phrase pent, and the word repentance means uh, like penthouse. It's higher. So when we repent, we're taking a higher level of thinking. This has, this verse talks about don't, it's, don't descend. It, there's a word that's also in there that where we get our word apathy. It says don't descend into <clears throat> a way of thinking that isn't good, but ascend into a higher level of thinking. And so that's what the text says. Don't descend into a pattern of thinking like everyone else, but ascend into a pattern of thinking that quickly gets you to a place of rest. Okay? Why does it say this? Because of the issue with the spies. Hebrews chapter 4 is, is banking everything it's teaching on the land of Canaan, which is why I started in the story of Canaan. And the takeover of Canaan. So everything in Hebrews 4 is banked on Joshua and Caleb and the ten other spies. And here's what happened. <coughs> Excuse me. Twelve spies, Joshua and Caleb, ten other guys that are recorded in Scripture, but we don't remember. Because they didn't believe, so we don't remember. Those twelve guys, they, they investigated Canaan. They're, they were checking it out. And here's the important lesson. All twelve guys saw the same thing, reported the same thing. They all saw and reported the same thing. There were giants in the land. There was food in the land. There was a bounty of crops in the land. There were all kinds of nice things in the land. But there were bad people in the land. They all saw the same thing. But they didn't all interpret it the same way. You see, ten spies saw the challenge of Canaan through the lens of their efforts. And they saw giants and military outposts and people, and they thought, we can't do this. We're not strong enough. We're not big enough. We can't do this. We are not able. Joshua and Caleb, however, looked at the exact same situation. They had a different lens. Their lens wasn't, what can I do? Their lens was, what did God say he would do? What did God promise? And so they looked at giants, and they didn't see giants. They saw holes in the ground waiting to happen. They saw all the fruit and all the bounty of the land, and they didn't see difficulty in claiming it for their own. They were figuring out recipes. 
They've been on manna for 40 years, man. Manna burgers, but manna bread. They were tired of manna. They're like, man, I'm going to try a grape. Mm. Some grapes. Sorry, I, I don't know what's wrong with me either, folks. I really don't. So what happened was that Joshua and Caleb ascended up to God in his way of thinking. And the ten, the ten other spies descended into a pattern of unbelief. They believed, like most Americans, if it is to be, it's up to me. And I don't know how to do it. And I'm not strong enough to do it. And I don't have the resources to do it. This isn't today's message, but do you realize when you trust in God that you are given access to all of his resources? Did you know that? You know, Christy is my amazing wife. You know she's amazing. Right? I mean, you're like, the most common question she gets is, how do you live with him? You know that? <laughs> it's true. Do you know there is nothing in my life that isn't hers? Everything in my life, every dollar, every penny, every tic-tac. I mean, sometimes it gets that low. We're down to tic-tacs. How many tic-tacs will you take for that? No, I'm just kidding. Everything in our life she has access to because she's my love. She's my bride. You know you're the bride of Christ, right? You're the bride of Christ. You have access to everything he has access to you. Everything that's impossible for him is impossible for you. Uh, which is nothing. Right? So, this is what this Hebrews 4.11 is about. It's about ascending into a higher way of thinking. So, that was my introduction. Here's the message. I had an extra hour. Calm down. Everybody relax. We live when we choose to believe. Do you believe that Jesus is better than Joshua? Oh, that's a good place to start right there. Jesus is better than Joshua. He did not play the game like Joshua did. Joshua did obey God. That was good. But Joshua did not give rest. Because you cannot give rest by creating chaos. And so Jesus gave rest because he suffered chaos. And so I need you to understand that Jesus is better than Joshua. I need you to understand that the theological belief that stands in all forms of Orthodox Christianity is that the, the work of Christ is finished. That is what it is technically called the finished work of Christ. The finished, say finished. finished. If he finished it, and I think he said something like that on the cross, if I recall correctly, it is finished. Yeah, that's what, he, that's what he said. If it is finished, I can't add to it. I can't improve it. I, you know what I can do? I can enjoy it. I can embrace it. I can believe it. I can accept it. But I am never. That, that's the problem with religion. Religion teaches you, yes, it's the finished work of Christ, and then it starts telling you how to finish your own faith. Hmm. 
What does that mean? I mean, really, I know what you're saying. What, what am I supposed to do with that? I, I, I want to walk in faith. I want to walk in power. I want to walk with God. You see, it all begins when you begin to accept that you are dearly loved and greatly enjoyed. You begin to stop trying to get anywhere with God and you start enjoying where you are with God. You see, I, the spiritual disciplines are amazing, like reading your Bible, being part of a community, all those things that we do to, to focus on God. But their purpose is not to get you accepted to God, to make you somehow so that God will notice you. Or he notices you. His eyes are upon you right now, okay? It, none, it's not for that. What the spiritual discipline's for is for you to stop, to cease, to catapult. To cease in a moment of rest and exist in a realm of rest so that you can enjoy the fact that you are dearly loved and greatly enjoyed. When Jesus was in, he prayed all the time, talked to his father. Do you think he was sitting out there just totally stressed out about things that are going on and worried about who he's going to heal tomorrow and all this kind of stuff? Or do you think he was just ceasing in a, a realm of rest with his father and enjoying what it is to be the dearly loved son of God. I think that's what gave him the power. I don't think stress, I don't think he ever stressed. Okay, the Garden of Eden, I mean the Garden of Gethsemane, there was blood drops. But I don't think he was stressing there about the father. I think he was stressing there because of man. Because of Adam. Because what had what Adam, mankind believed, that's another sermon. I don't, I don't want, man, I start digging in that well. We're going to be here a while, and I only have an extra hour, not four. And I know some of you are going, I'm really tired of this joke. We'll see. We'll see. The finished work of Christ is a the theological doctrine. The fact that I'm saying it and teaching it is nothing new. What is new for many is that I'm teaching you to enter it, to embrace it as complete. Stop trying to get somewhere that you already are. Believe. Come to a higher level of thinking that dismisses the idea that it's, if it is to be, it's up to me. That dismisses the idea that because my circumstances are harsh, that God is harsh. That's not true. Things are happening in the world. And yes, God is sovereign. He's over all those things. He has authority over all those things. But He's not doing all those things. You understand? He's not destroying people and crushing people. People are doing that without Him. And so don't let your circumstances form your theology about God. Because God is love. God is love. And He dearly loves. And He loves you. And he loves everyone. He loves your worst enemies. Okay, I, I don't want to go down that road. I just want you to know that it's actually always been this way. Passages from the Old Covenant that noticed it said things like, the battle belongs to the Lord. Except the Lord builds the house. They labor in vain that build it. And Zechariah said, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. This is why Paul taught and anchored his entire doctrine on a statement in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, that says the just shall live by faith, by believing, by thinking higher 
than everyone else around them by trusting God and not themselves. You begin to think this way, move this way, and and begin to realize that those 10 spies who had a lens on of human effort, a lens on of human ability, who descended into what they could not do, they didn't even know about the Son of God who would come and say, with God, all things are possible. They didn't even know about that yet. And so they thought they were, it was all dependent upon them, even though God had delivered them from Egypt, even though they had just walked through a year before, they had just walked through the Red Sea and God had destroyed all of their enemies, even though they drank water from a river that started with a rock that God hit, that Moses hit with his staff, even though every day they ate manna, fresh bread from heaven, even though all these things happened. They still got to the Canaan land and thought to themselves, if it is to be, it's up to me. And Christianity says, nothing is impossible with God. That's where belief starts. Because belief looks at things with that eye of faith and it begins to trust Faith looks at your finances, which are not enough. The old country song, too much month at the end of the money. Who hasn't lived it? Faith looks at that and says, I trust God, not the numbers that the bank is telling me is in my account. We actually used to have to balance our own checkbooks back in the day. You had to do math. I haven't done it in a long time. I had too much faith in my math. That's uh, not the best place to, I mean, you can have faith in God, but when you have faith in your math, things get rough. I have faith in Jesus' math, that's okay, but um, you can look at the relationships that are struggling in your life. This is a big one. Life is relationships. It just is. Even if you don't want it to be. Even if you've been hurt so much, you're like, I'm never letting another person in. It won't change a thing. You will still be in relationships all over your life. And, and, and you can learn to trust God in those relationships. Maybe you trust God to guide you as to what to do. Maybe you trust God to change things in a relationship. And usually when, he, when you trust God to change things in your relationship, the first person he starts to work on is actually you. But um, often we pray that God will change people and the people he works on is us. So we begin to trust God and we look at the circumstances that are giving us pause, the marriage problems, the parenting problems, the money problems, the government problems, the political problems, the world problems. We look at all those problems. And I'm going to tell you what, it does no good to declare the works of Satan. It doesn't do any good to tell everyone how successful Satan's being at being the deceiver and the liar and the destroyer. That is not what trust is. Trust does not declare the works of the enemy. Trust declares the works of God. Trust declares the love of God and the joy of God and the hand of God. And I may not always be able to see what God's doing, but but when I panic, and I do all the time, when I panic, I remember this one really cool story out of the Gospels. It was told four times. And it was the story where Jesus lost 
It was the story where Jesus is falsely convicted, falsely charged with the crime, falsely convicted, condemned to die, beaten and crucified and killed. And I remember, as I remember that story, that it looked like God had lost. It looked like Jesus had lost. But just at the moment when it looks like that God had lost, then something happened. And then we realized something was going on that we couldn't see until the Son of God walked out of the grave. We're always just waiting for a resurrection. We're always just waiting for a miracle. We're always just waiting for the Father to show up in love and power. That's all we're waiting for. So don't look at the world and panic. Please stop proclaiming the anti-gospel of the devil and start seeing what God sees and saying what God says. That's what trust is. Anxiety is not trust. That was for me. I have... I know you're going to go, oh, you probably don't worry about anything. <laughs> I'm just saying that out loud. I just almost said a bad word. I mean, it's like, well, a foul word, chicken. <sighs> uh, Anxiety is not trust. Trust leads into rest. God's got this. I don't have to see it. I don't have to understand it. I really don't. I want to. And God is so good, he lets me ask stupid questions all day long. He does. Why are you doing this? Sometimes his answer is, I'm not, you are. Sometimes he's like, you made bad choices, why is it my fault? I don't understand. And that's true, that's a proverb. It says we, people ruin their lives by their decisions and then blame God for the outcome. And we do it all the time. Fear is not trust. If I could get, if I had a platform that the church in America would listen to me, I would tell them point blank that the fear you're experiencing right now is not of God. It cannot be. Because perfect love casts out fear. And if there is fear, it's because there is fear of judgment, which is exactly what's happening in our country, our world right now. People are terrified. Because they don't have a God, they're their own God. Do you understand that? They don't have a God yet. They don't trust God yet. But you do. You do. And it's okay to have a day of panic or an hour of panic. It's okay to look at things and not understand. That's fine. But then turn to your Father and remind yourself. Because the Scripture is filled with reminders. And where we say, we remind ourselves, God is love. God is sovereign. God will somehow work this out. I don't know how. But I'm going to keep putting one foot in front of the other. I'm going to keep following him, and I'm going to trust him, even though it doesn't make sense. And you know when you're on the right track, when everyone's looking at you and saying, how are you so calm? How can you trust God when things are like this? Shazam, you have arrived. You're there. You can feel free to say Shazam anytime you want. Shazam. If you're old enough, you remember Gomer Pyle, Shazam. But you got to have a few miles on you to get there. So uh, anxiety is trust, fear is trust, doubt is not trust. I'll tell you what trust is. Trust, trust is a teenage girl talking to an angel who's pregnant. And the angel says, you are highly favored. 
You are precious in the sights of God. Trust says what that teenage girl said. Let it be to me according to what you said. Whatever you say, I'm good. That's trust. Trust is the guy I identify much with in the New Testament. Trust is loud mouth, says too much, wrong words, wrong time, Peter. Gosh. I read Peter and I'm like, how can you be so thick? And then I do the same things he did. <laughs> Drives me crazy. Trust is that, that loudmouth knucklehead. If you're really the Lord, invite me to walk on the water. If I wasn't the Lord, that's exactly what I'd do. I'd get rid of you. Step out of the boat. <laughs> Trust is... Come on. Jesus says, come on. And trust is setting that foot over the boat and walking across a raging sea like an idiot. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> he was doing great for a minute. As long as he, and there, there's the secret, man. He just, as long as he had his eyes on Jesus, it was all good. It did not matter what that storm was doing because Jesus filled his vision. And let that teach us all a lesson. The presence of Jesus changes everything. But God gave me one earlier this year. I don't know who the first disciple was that did this. But one of those disciples, I even watched The Chosen, they didn't tell either. That was a joke. One of those disciples, after Jesus had said, you have my authority, go out, prepare the way of the kingdom, and you cast demons out, and you heal sick people, and you heal lepers, and you, throw, uh, you raise dead people. I don't know who the first disciple was that walked into a bad situation and the thought occurred to him. It doesn't have to stay this way. That leper does not have to stay unclean and covered in sores and dirty. And, and that blind guy over there does not have to stay blind. That dead person, who thought this? Who thought this? Do you understand how amazing that is? One of the disciples was the first one to step out and go, in the name of Jesus, get up! And then it happened! See, that's trust. Because I know you read those stories and you think to yourself, well, you know, it doesn't happen as much now or it doesn't happen today and so forth. But I'm telling you, God's just waiting for you to trust. He doesn't do things without people very often. He usually has someone who's the glove on his hand or that's the megaphone for his voice. And so I... Believing is believing and beginning to trust. It's beginning to elevate your thinking and realize things don't have to stay this way. God can be trusted. Even though my circumstances are challenging, they don't have to stay this way. And they can be changed not by my human effort. Obviously, there are always simple things we can do. For example, you can stop choking your spouse. That will probably improve the relationship. Okay, that's... That's true. That's a ceasing. That's a catapau and will get you into catapauses. 
But that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is I am trusting God in this situation. I'm trusting God with this pain. I'm trusting God with this loss. Why? Because God loves me. God wants to heal me. God wants to bless me. God wants to release his power and love and joy and enjoyment in my life, in my heart. That's what he wants to do. That is his nature to do. That is his primary way of dealing with people. So do you believe? Do you believe? That's the question, isn't it? Do I believe? And I know... I need you, I know what happens when I ask that question, you believe, and, and you immediately go back to whatever your Christian testimony is, and, and I'm glad you have that, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about what you're in the middle of right now. I'm talking about the pain you're hurt, holding, the loss you're experiencing, the stress you're not enjoying, the grief you're carrying. I, 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 that's what I'm talking about right now. Do you choose to believe in God? Believe in a God who loves you beyond your wildest hopes and dreams. A God who Paul said will do more in your life than you could ever imagine or hope for. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 21. He wants to do more in your life than you could ever even hope for. Some of you have dreams right now that you are giving up on. You are quitting on. You are ceasing from the wrong thing. And, and here I'm telling you, trust your father to bring it into fruition. Trust your father like Abram did. He didn't have a son. He was an old man. God said he'd have a son and he kept believing God would give him a son even though the science did not support it. <sighs> Let's bow our heads. Father, I don't want to overcamp on this. But I also don't want a single person to leave this place in a place of unbelief. But I have no control over that, obviously. Holy Spirit, walk the room, please. Holy Spirit, walk the room. People are facing things. Some people in the room are feeling great. They've had a great week, and thank God for that. But I pray, Lord, that you would help them to trust you as they go into this week, too. Some are facing health things that there aren't answers for.